Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome on in to another episode of the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. I am Colin with my co-host, Jamie. If you are new to the show, thank you for joining in. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the major podcasting platforms. If you feel inclined, also feel free to leave us a review, good or bad. It helps us either way get more recognition and traction, and we'd really appreciate the feedback Today's episode is featuring Melissa Kuberka, who is the head coach for the women's basketball team at St. John Fisher College in Rochester, New York. And so we will get to that conversation here in just a minute. But before we do that, Jamie, it's time for our big wins of the week. I can't remember who went first last week. So I'm going to make you go first because I just, I just feel like you set a good tone for everything. So I'll let you kick it off. All right. I I can't remember who went first last week either. Um, And I don't know if I'm going to be kicking it off on the best tone, but I was thinking about what my big win of the week was. And to be completely honest with you, I could had a really, really hard time. Um, I've been tired. I feel like I'm getting sick. Um, I've been really anxious. I've had like the most anxiety in the last week that I've had in years. So I'm just going to say like getting myself out of bed this morning and getting back to, you know, the puppies I've been up all night with the puppies and then, um, kind of pushing through to get my early morning drop offs and, um, so make sure I've got to do what I got to do. Sometimes I feel like that is a win in and of itself is just like pushing through. And, um, that's what it feels like for me this week. Yeah, I think sometimes too, that's a good recognition piece, like the small wins that lead to maybe some of our bigger wins, like those are important, right? Like, um, you know, get, getting out of bed, you know, you can't just for you specifically, you can't just really ignore the responsibilities and the things that you have. And maybe you have to adjust and move things around because you're not feeling all that great and, you know, some, some different things, but um, to know that you know, you haven't just given up on the responsibilities that you have for those puppies who have like no control over, you know, anything. And, you know, they want the care and the attention and love and everything. Like, yeah, I, I, I know it maybe doesn't feel like that to you. Um, but I think that small win leading into maybe some of the bigger wins like that, that's a pretty big deal to me. Yeah. I mean, it takes those small wins, I guess, to get to the big ones. So that's a really good point. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. My win <laughs> is contingent on uh, if I actually receive my books or not. So uh, last week, I was supposed to go up to Kannapolis for the Cannonballers game. And um, I got a like a table inside the concourse uh, during one of the baseball games. It's single A uh, baseball team here in the Charlotte area. And um, I was going to sell my book, Culture of, of Excellence, during the game. And uh, long story short, I ordered a whole bunch of books a few weeks ago, and they still have not arrived for, I'm sure, a number of various reasons, including but not limited to this pandemic that we're all experiencing. Uh, the books are supposed to come tomorrow. Today is Tuesday. They're supposed to come on Wednesday. And then I'm supposed to go on Friday again uh, to the second to last homestand for this season. Uh, so I'm up against time. And then I'm <laughs> like if the books don't come, uh, the next available weekend would be when I was planning on being an OIB. And um, so I maybe would have to try to figure something out. I really don't want to not be at the beach, but I also ordered a bunch of books and would love to get in front of a baseball you know, specific crowd and you know, try to make some connections, maybe sell a few books as well. Um so I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that this delivery that I finally got a delivery date because for the longest time I didn't even have a delivery date. Um, 
but I'm just going to keep my fingers crossed that that delivery comes through tomorrow and that the weather is really good. That was the other thing. Like the weather ended up being really good. You know how it is like in here at this time of year, like every evening there seems to be a thunderstorm and like Friday was totally clear, totally good. It was hot, but you know, it was clear and they would have, they played. And uh, so I just got to hope that the books come through tomorrow, that the weather holds off on Friday evening. And then you will find me if anyone, well, you won't hear this uh, before then, but uh, that people will find me in Kannapolis at the baseball game on Friday uh, with my book. And uh, I'm, I'm super jazzed about it. So I, I do hope everything kind of falls into place, especially with some of the delays that we've had. <laughs> Yes, me too. Uh, I'm excited for you and also nervous for you. Um, I've had some furniture actually show up early recently. So fingers crossed that's what happens and it'll all be there. There we go. I don't, I mean, at this point, as long as it's here by Friday at, you know, I don't know, five o'clock at night, uh, I, I, I might need to leave like around six to get there on time, depending on traffic. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're obviously way past early at this point, but, um, you know, maybe that is a good omen that you've had some luck getting things recently and my stuff will arrive on time, undamaged and ready to go. <laughs> yes. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> for sure. For sure. All right. Let's move into our lead in segment, excuse me, with, um, before we get into the conversation with Melissa and, uh, one of the elements about this conversation, Jamie, that stood out to me is uh, when Melissa was talking about a selfless and you know, team first type culture that she has cultivated with her basketball team up at St. John Fisher College. Um, and I, you know, just knowing Melissa, uh, I've had multiple conversations with her before we recorded this podcast and then getting an opportunity to do this podcast so everyone else can, you know, hear these different things. Um, it's not just, you know, saying the right things because that's what people want to hear. I mean, she's got examples that she talks about in the podcast, of like why she knew she needed to make a switch to this type of culture, you know, how she uh, goes about it and everything. But it really made me start to think about a selfless culture in general. Um, <laughs> and we live in like such a divisive society these days that, um, you know, I, I did really have to think about it. I was like, what examples can I come up with off the top of my head that, you know, I can look at these teams or I can look at these people and know that they're doing, you know, these really selfless things. And um, for me, like, you know, a lot of what I end up seeing outside of maybe my immediate circle. So like my family and my closest friends, and it's not to say that they don't do selfless things, but um, I try not to embarrass them too much here on the podcast. So <laughs> I, uh, a lot of times the people I make connections with is through social media and, you know, that's the way I use the tool, obviously not the way that everyone else uses it, but for me, it's making meaningful connections. And, um, I found a couple people who, um, you know, the, you would think maybe, you know, not really these like crazy innovative ideas, um, but something like, uh, you know, Kelsey Trainer, who was a past guest on this podcast and her t-shirt campaign and how, um, you know, now it's more than just t-shirts, it's hoodies, it's baby wear, it's sandals. Um, and it's all about that message, you know, invest in women. And it's this really selfless act that, um, you know, she doesn't take a single cent from those proceeds. They all go toward black women hockey and uh, that organization. And um, being selfless is not always about, you know, raising money and putting it toward a good cause. But I thought that was a really big one that stands out in my life. And Kelsey is, I mean, she's just always trying to do the right thing. And I think selfless people in general, like that's what it is. It's not like a walk all over me. I'm, I'm a doormat type mentality, but it's, I, I have a moral compass. I know what I want to do and I'm not going to let you know, what other people, you know, maybe some of that negativity, those energy vampires, I'm not going to let them creep in and, um, you know, make me sad, make me angry, um, you know, destroy my day, whatever it is. But uh, what about you? I mean, you know, in terms of kind of a selfless culture, a selfless mentality, you know, when you hear that, what do you think about? Yeah, what comes to mind for me very clearly was, um, an example from my past rescue work up in New York City, working with Muddy Paws Rescue. I was a volunteer with them since they got started and still pop in and host for them time to time. 
um, but they are as an organization like selfless as a whole obviously they get back to rescues they've all the staff is dedicated kind of their livelihood and lives to rescue work but beyond that i think what stands out especially when you talk about selflessness is the way they treat other staff members and their volunteers it's such a strong team um, but when you're talking about also a team of volunteers who are just doing it out of the goodness of their heart i mean we see so much tragedy and tragedy and rescue work and the way they handle that and kind of help people kind of stay strong and remind them of why we do it and even though we can't save them all kind of the good we're doing i just see people constantly going out of their way in that organization to lift each other up and put others needs before their own not just the dogs but also the other people who are involved in the rescue so um, that's really what stands out in my mind is that that group of people yeah and, and i it's a great real life example of what we're or what melissa is going to be talking about in the episode here in just a, a couple of seconds, but um, you know, it starts with the individual. It starts with someone like Kelsey who has that vision. And then it takes a group of people really buying into all of that and lifting each other up, helping them through the tough times. Like, you know, what, what you were doing there, I can't imagine that it's all, you know, really fun work, even though you maybe really liked all the people and there had to be difficult times. So I think that's a really powerful example. And, a great way to lead us into the conversation with Melissa. So with that being said, hold tight. Melissa's coming up next. We are off the week of Labor Day. So just want to let everyone know that we will be back the week after that. I think it's September 13th off the top of my head. Uh, So no episode the week of Labor Day on Labor Day, uh, but enjoy this episode with Melissa and Jamie and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone. I am here today with Melissa Kuberka, and Melissa is a head coach for the women's basketball team at St. John's Fisher College in New York, upstate New York, where I'm originally from. So Melissa and I have that nice little connection there. Melissa, I want to start today's conversation. I'm going to do something a little bit fun for you. I was going through some of the (laughs) the long emails and the exchanges that we've had. You've been one of my pen pals, uh, especially during COVID and things like that. And I want to read off one of the responses you gave me. You gave me a little bit of feedback about my book. And in one of those pieces of feedback was a reflection on yourself. And I'd like to read this off to you because then what I'd love to do is learn a little bit more about your growth as a leader, because today, I want to spend as much time as we can talking about you, your leadership, your growth as a leader, and tying that all into team culture, because I know that's a really important aspect for you. So let me read the, the quick couple lines from this email. I promise it's it's nothing crazy. So uh, <laughs> it was- um, I'm a little nervous, but this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so it was feedback on one of your favorite sections in my book about the uh, d- development not being linear and the whole Didi Gregorius example. And so that was leading up to these couple lines that I'll read where you said, I'm a big believer that is my job to develop my players. But early on, I used the crutch that I'm a D3 coach who can't be in the gym with my players until October 15th. So you kind of broke down as to when you can't be with them and and so on. And then you said, that was 23 year old me talking. Now at almost 30, I've come to realize that I can recruit better. I can set the example better. And then you said, and by spending extra time developing them in season to prepare them to continue to develop while I'm not with them. 
Um, and you, you ended this all by saying that you've become more committed to helping them develop as people completely separate from basketball. And I think those lines are so powerful because there's that self-recognition, right? Where 23 year old you is completely different than who you are right now. And in politics, that's a bad thing. Like if you talk to a politician and they flip-flopped on something, they'll get you for that. But in normal life and especially in coaching, to have the recognition of some of the areas where you had some gaps or maybe some weaknesses even and be able to address them and be able to grow as a person. I think that's so powerful. And that's why I wanted to read that off and start there. And I would love if you could tell us more about what happened for you to say like, wow, I'm not the leader that I know I need to be to have the impact that I want to have. Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me and that, you know, you dug that deep in the emails. I probably should have reviewed some of my answers and <laughs> some of our conversations ahead of time. But yeah, so, you know, basically, like I said, when I was 23, I had, you know, just come off of playing. I interviewed for a head coaching position more for interview experience than anything else. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm a college head coach with very little coaching experience. And so, you know, I kind of walked in expecting that I could say, you know, this is what I did to be successful. And this is what my teammates did to be successful. You know, you do this in the off season and we're going to be in a good spot. And, you know, we show up October 15th and players are out of shape. Players haven't picked up a basketball and, you know, kind of going, you know, then didn't, didn't I say that this, you know, that, that we can't do this. And so <laughs> it was just that realization that, you know, my words can only go so far and I have to be living you know, what I want from them. And so it, it definitely took time to realize that, you know, as much as, you know, people say, you know, you got to walk the walk, the walk, um, can't just talk the talk. It was more of having my players see that it was everything that I did had that discipline piece to it. And that it wasn't just about fitness and it wasn't just about getting shots up in the gym, but it was that I was the first one to the office. And if they, you know, they were coming by, they knew that I was there. You know, they, I wasn't cutting out my hours early and, and that sort of thing. But going back to kind of how I got there, I think it was really just through trial and error and getting sick of, you know, not having the results that I wanted and knowing that I couldn't put the blame on my players every time. You know, I recruited them, you know, and, and I needed to find a way to get the most out of them as opposed to just pointing the finger and saying, you know, you're not doing what I want. It's your fault. It's, it's me taking that ownership. And at the same time, the next time I recruit, making sure I'm recruiting a kid who loves getting in the gym, making sure I'm recruiting a kid who I know from March through October is going to be committed to that. And, you know, the, the last piece of it is, you know, I'm as much as I was playing a game as a player, as a coach, I'm not coaching a game. I'm coaching a group of people. And I think that's been the biggest realization I've had is that, you know, as much as as a player, it's a game to you coaching in the moment, it's a game, but not, uh, not in the, the big picture. There's a lot more non-basketball related things that we're doing every day. Yeah. I love that answer. And there are so many pieces I want to pull out and I want to start with the whole walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Cause <laughs> it seems like from your experience, the easy part was getting that first head coaching job. You, you didn't go in anticipating that that was going to be the easy part. But as you said, you took that interview more as an opportunity to get experience. And then, boom. The next thing you know, you're a head coach. And I'm, I'm so interested in what were some of the things, you know, I know, I know there's only a certain extent that, that you can share with us, or maybe that you're, you're willing to share with us, but what were some of the things that you were saying that weren't sticking and like, was it almost like a, a slap to the face to be like, well, I said it in the interview process. They believed me. Like, why, why aren't these players buying into to what I'm saying? And um, so can you tell us like, cause, I, cause I'm sure there's still like the, the line that you need to walk in terms of you still need to communicate to them. Right. And there are still things that they need to be told and they need to be coached and you know, whatever it is. Like, how did you go from saying things that weren't sticking at all <laughs> to saying things that have much more impact today? Right. You know, so I think part of that was, you know, I went in with what I, you know, what I envisioned a program looking like and what I 
um, you know, the, the basic team guidelines that every, every team has, you know, I, I had that and I gave it to the players in the interview and all of that was based on my playing experience. It was based on the school I was at with the teammates I had. And it was really that realization that I wasn't coaching myself. I wasn't coaching my teammates. I wasn't at the same school. It was a, a different situation. And so really it was just adjusting to their needs where, you know, it was a silly thing. I don't know why we had it in our team rules when I was a player, but we had a curfew on, on the night before games. None of us were ever going to be out the night before a game, but it was just in there. And I put it in the, the my, my first um, positions rules and a bunch of players asked me about it. And it turns out, you know, they work till 1030 or 11 o'clock and, you know, the night before a game. And so they can't make curfew. And it was just like the realization of, you know, little things that I thought were a given were weren't for, for where I where I was at with it was at Hilbert College, my first um, first job. And so, you know, and then some of that was even with the summer workouts. You know, there's in Buffalo, there's a, in Rochester, there's a ton of summer leagues where kids can be playing and you're not, you know, missing, you know, months and months of games. And the team would, would have a game and I, I was still playing at the time. So I'd show up with all my retired players and I, and we, we'd go out and I couldn't believe how few of my Hilbert players were there. And then it turned out they were working or it turns out they were doing, you know, something that wouldn't allow them to be there. So it was just the realization that it was a different type of school than I went to as a different group and being able to adapt to their needs while also holding them to a high standard. And at that time, their standard was different than what mine was, but it didn't mean we couldn't elevate to a higher one. It just had to meet them where they were and then grow from there. And so you're leading me into a little bit of the research I did, and I'm going to do my Penn State nerding out here because I was making a comparison in, in my own mind. So when you start out at Hilbert and during your time there, you win double digit games. I think you were there two seasons before moving on. So you win double digit games both seasons and they had only won 14 games total in the previous five seasons before you got there. And I was thinking about James Franklin, who's the head coach for the Penn State football team. When he got to Vanderbilt, his stop before Penn State, historically awful football program, took them to double digit wins, back to back bowl games uh, for the first time, maybe the only time in, in school history. And so how how do you you know come into a program where it seemed like I, I, disconnect's not the right word, but th but there were a lot of differences in maybe what your initial philosophies had been, and then quite frankly, what your experiences had been up to that point. But you knew that in order to keep your job, you have to win at some extent, right? And you have to be able to start piecing that part of everything together while also being able to better develop these people and have those recognitions that you just talked about a few minutes ago. So like, you know, how do you <laughs> take a program that only won 14 games in five years and have them win double digits? Like, is it, is it as simple as, okay, you'd go through all those recognitions, like you said, from a per personal standpoint, but are you also putting in the work like on the court in the drills, the fundamentals, like doing maybe making more of a, an effort there than you were previously? Like what goes behind all of that to make such a significant change? Well, I think one thing that people might not be aware of at the division three level is that a lot of head coaching jobs aren't full time. So when I first started at Hilbert, I was a part time head coach in grad school. Um, and it was it kind of the stars kind of just aligned for it all to happen. And the previous coach was actually, was a great guy. He was actually my assistant for a year when I played. And so I was very familiar with him and he was driving an hour and a half um, after teaching to go work this job where the teams he was competing against had full-time coaches and some, some of them even full-time assistant coaches. So it just, I was able to basically treat it like a full-time job because, you know, I was in school, but at the same time, it was, you know, I was doing some other things, but it was really what, where my priorities were. And so I think being able to give them that, you know, they, they had never been able to have a coach who was around offering individual workouts throughout the day. It wasn't just a two hour practice. And then I was leaving. It was, Hey, you know, let's get in the gym for 45 minutes between your classes and work on this. Um, and it was, I, I just think part of the, the initial success was they were just given more because I had more to give. 
and you know, eventually it became a full-time job and you know that made it even better because I was there all the time they could come to my office anytime and you know we built those relationships but the initial piece was giving them every second that I had and you know trying I, again I I can't believe looking back how young I was when I had that position and how you know I was able to to still play a little bit. And so I was able to push them around. And I think that, that in a sense, you know, motivated them a little bit, you know, you don't want the, the washed up coach knocking down shots when you're facing the drill. So, you know, we're going to close out harder type thing and, you know, little things like that. And so I think that was the start, but then the next piece was really establishing what was acceptable and what wasn't. Um, you know, my, my first probably two weeks of practice, I had to kick someone out of practice. And I remember that was just shocking to the players that, you know, player was F bomb and this and that, you know, kicked a garbage can. I said, okay, you're gone. And it was just like a, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is serious type type thing. And then that just kind of snowballed and allowed us to recruit players who were, were interested in a more disciplined program. Um, and, you know, we, I, I told him that I was, you know, used to being a successful player and the only way to be successful is to do, do what you have to in the off season, but then in, in season, you know, you need to make certain commitments and these recruits bought into it and, you know, really allowed us to turn the program around. But, you know, I think my presence being around more and being able to give them more, and then they're just buy into my vision. Um, you know, one example of that is my, my second year of coaching the lacrosse coach at Hilbert quit week into the season, she quit. So my, my AD knew that I had been a high school lacrosse coach. So he asked me if I'd want to take over the program. And I said, you know, sure. If you need me to, for this season, you know, why did the other coach quit? Well, she only had like 11 girls and she it just wasn't worth her time. So I went back to my basketball team and said, Hey, no, you guys have probably never played lacrosse, but come play lacrosse cross for me let's let's you know we'll, we'll stick together longer and I think there was only two players out of my you know 15 who didn't play because they had to work so you know we'll go from a lacrosse team of 11 to over 20 and that was some of the most fun that we had and it was just they bought into the fact that we're at a college we're playing college sports and we might not be very good but we're going to have fun being with each other and that's you know that that I think that's what really brought the success we had. Yeah, that, that's such a cool story. And we definitely got to get some footage of you hitting down those uh, those shots and people trying to box you out on the court. We, there's definitely some in the archives, but we'll keep them there for now. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so uh, what I'm, I'm interested to know, did you have a moment then at Hilbert, like we just talked about, there was a lot of success and a lot of really great relationship building and an overall culture change, it seems like. Was there a moment when after some of that initial success came in where complacency started to set in, not only for the players, but potentially for you as well, where you were like, all right, this feels good. Maybe maybe we don't need to do some of those individual drills quite as often because we're finding some success. Or were you able to like, you know, keep the foot on the pedal, you know, really start to push through and, and not lose sight of the hard work that got you to that point? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, I. I'm sure there were times where complacency kind of sank in, but really as a whole, we never got to where we wanted to be. You know, again, they were winning more than they ever had, but, you know, winning 11 games and still losing 14, those are 14 games that, you know, we, we wish we would have done something differently or we know that we could have done something differently with. And, you know, the other piece of all of this is that it wasn't my husband at the time, but my husband was the one who would kind of initially was encouraging me to, to look into um, this pursuing this job. And, you know, he has been with me by my side the whole time. He, he played at Lafayette and then was a college coach for a while prior to me meeting him. And, you know, he's been great with me not having coached with anyone else, helping me analyze what we're doing and seeing, you know, things from a different perspective. And so, you know, we might, sometimes we might've walked out of a game with a win and I'm, you know, feeling pretty good. And he might mention that our post players weren't doing something that he thought they should be, or, you know, and again, he's the biggest supporter I have, but just that other set of eyes that's talking at the dinner table um, really has gone a long way every year since, since I started. And so there definitely, I'm sure there were times where, you know, I, I felt complacent because I was happy with where we were at, but we never got to where I thought we could be. And again, having someone just kind of help motivate me to, you know, you can do better. Your players can be better. Yeah. Yeah. Having 
that support system. I mean, that's, that's gotta be a huge key for everybody. I, I think to stay motivated to, you know, maybe have something internally and externally to play for in, in some senses. So um, I think that's, that's really cool relationship that you have with your husband. And so you end up where you currently are at St. John Fisher college. How did you, what happened there with the transition? How'd you end up there and uh, give us a little insight into that? So that again, kind of a, just a crazy situation where one of my former teammates was in pharmacy school at, at Fisher. And she sent me a text one day and said, I think the Fisher coach left, you know, the jobs open here. How cool it would be if you came out here. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm at Hilbert college. I've been here for two years. You know, we, we don't, we're not even above 500 right now. You know, I can't go to Fisher. It's the, the legacy that they have. And I think back as a player playing them once and one of my worst games I've ever had was against them. And just because they, they were so talented and uh, just, just kind of thought no way. But and then I started thinking about it and said, you know what, why not, why not apply? Why not apply and see kind of where it takes me. And again, things lined up and it just was the right fit for the athletic director um, and for myself. And, you know, it was, I got the job on Wednesday, got married on Friday, went on my honeymoon and then came back and it was the, you know, our first season, um, you know, where it was basically practice time. And, you know, I didn't get to recruit that first year at all. It was the, the, the team I had was the team I had. And that was, it was one of those things where I saw them play pickup when I first got the job. And I thought, wow, this group is talented, most talented group. I'll, you know, compared to Hilbert, they were, you know, light years ahead of them. But the problems that were going on within the locker room and just the just the the different sort of culture than what I was used to being a part of, you know, things things had to change and they had to change quickly. And just to give you an example, we we had a game where, you know, we were a very talented team, but took us a while to get to to performing at a high level. And I had a player who got so frustrated, she punched an opponent. And I just I was shy. It was one of those situations where it didn't feel real. And at the same time, I have my top recruit in the stands watching this game. And so it was one of those things where I, you know, and, you know, a couple of players on the bench are cheering about it and stuff. And so it was just one of those things where I said, this is it. You know, I, I can't be making an hour and a half drive every day being, you know, being away from my new husband and figuring out, you know, this new life. And this is what I'm, I'm working with. And, you know, these players are going to graduate and, and everything. And, you know, what kind of, mark am I leaving on them if, if that's acceptable so that was actually right before Christmas break that was our last game before Christmas break and so I spent Christmas break just figuring out what was going to be different and it's very basic but I came back with the, the slogan simple and selfless and that was what we became about and that's what we've kind of just just the team now has bought into that we play very simple basketball and what I mean by that is there's a you know, million ways to defend screens. We defend screens two ways and we get really good at defending screens those two ways. You know, our offenses, we don't have a playbook that's two inches thick. We have our, our playbook, we have our plays, we adjust when we have to, but we keep it very simple and get good at things. But then the next and most important piece is the selfless piece in that, you know, nothing is, is more important than the team. And, and, and again, if you look at our stats, we don't have players averaging more than 13, 14 points a game, not because they can't, but because they're at 13, their teammates at 12.5, next players at 11. And I think that's a very difficult to scout and to play against when you have a team that, that's that balanced, but it's also, you're just happy for your teammates and you're, you can buy into the team first mentality when it's not a superstar mentality. Yeah, and I, I can imagine you know, you, you talked about just having the balanced attack and um, kind of having a un uniformity to the whole approach, how many benefits come from that. Um, but I can also see the, the other side where, um, you know, maybe especially on the recruiting trail, there might be some resistance to, to folks who want a little bit more of that individualism. They want, they want to be shiny. They want to make all the fast break plays and, you know, have fun on, on the court, not saying you're not having fun, but, you know, do it in their own way um, and maybe not stay so much into a system per se. And uh, so, I mean, do you, do you come up against those type of conversations with, with recruits? And like, if so, how, how do you go about selling that team concept to maybe someone who either didn't identify that that was something they wanted beforehand or didn't know that they could be a part of something like that? Yeah. 
the, the one thing that I found with recruiting is I have to be honest from day one because I can't get attached to a kid, uh, you know, really get excited about a kid coming to our program and them not check all the boxes off or to give them some sort of false sense of what it's going to be like to come to Fisher. And so that's one of the first, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't do template emails, you know, everything I do is as personal as possible. Um, but that's the one thing I try to always cover that if you're looking to come to a school where you're going to score 25 points a night, this isn't for you. And that's not because I don't think you'll be able to have some nights like that, but that's not the way we play you know, and the talk about how, how we sell it, our players sell it. When they, when a recruit comes on campus and sees how well they get along with each other and how much fun my players have, whether it's in the dining hall at a football game or in practice, you know, that does all the selling that we need, um, at least from my standpoint. But I, I try to be very honest because majority of the time, the kids we, we have playing at our level they were the leading scorer at their high school team. They're probably their best on their travel team. And they're used to being top dog and just understanding that, you know what, you could definitely have that role here, but it's going to look different than what it looked like when you were in high school. And I'm telling the same thing to the three other kids I'm recruiting in your class and, and just being honest and, and very fair across the board, right from the get go. You know, there's some kids who aren't interested in that. And, and the other piece of it is, I don't promise anyone a, a roster spot and I don't do that because I'm going to recruit 15 kids and only keep three of them. But I need to make sure that when you come to the first day of practice, that you're a really good person and you're a really good teammate. Cause I'll never go down that path of having a, a messy locker room and having players punch each other. Um, you know, that, that'll be, that won't happen. And so, you know, in the recruiting process, we do a lot of getting to know our players, but there's still, more that happens once we're actually on campus together. And so having players being willing to put the team first and say, hey, I'm gonna work hard enough to get a spot and I think I'm a good enough person to earn this spot. Um, you know, that those are the two things that we, we were honest with them right from the start. So what else from a culture perspective, cause you're leading us into this part of the conversation, what goes into making an environment where they get along in the dining hall, they get along at the football game. They obviously get along on the court and are able to perform at a high level because it, it, and that's been one of the, I think the most interesting parts of our conversations are not only do you love to talk about culture and and you want to find ways to enhance what you already have, but you want to perform at a high level too. Like I think there are some coaches out there that it's not, as important to them to win Um, and, you know, winning and losing isn't, isn't everything as we've talked about, but there's something to be said about getting a few W's here and there makes you feel good. And I think it helps keep people together. Whereas if you're losing all your games, I mean, it's, it's hard to get that continued buy-in. So anyway, I mean, what goes into all those different elements on the court, off the court, like how are you doing things and getting people together and getting them all aligned into one, one, uh, one team? I think there's a ton of pieces to that. And going back to your first question, I think it's been a process of figuring that out, you know, every year and with, with every recruiting class, you know, I've had to grow myself with figuring out what works and what doesn't. But I think one piece is, you know, I ask a player, a high school player, you know, why do you want to play in college? The number one answer we get there I get is because I love it and I've been doing it since as long as I can remember. And that's a huge piece. They, they have to come in and love playing basketball, but they have to, the, the real answer, what, what I, what I want to hear is that they love competing and they, they want to go to battle. And by doing that, um, by having that mindset, you're willing to put anything aside with your teammates that you have and just go to work with them. And by, you know, fighting for goals together, I think is what brings the team together. And when you, you know, you go through those hardships together, you know, it makes off the court stuff seem so much easier. And I don't, I don't know what, what my, you know, if there's a secret to get them to all, all be friends and all to buy in, but it's really just making sure that I create an environment for them to truly get to know each other. Um, and not just be on the surface, you know, they see each other at practice and then leave and to make sure that I, I give them the opportunity to get to know me and that I'm, I'm open and transparent with them to kind of give them that example. You know, the, the hardest part about this past year 
with COVID was that, you know, we weren't, ha I wasn't in my office all day long. I, I was allowed to come in, you know, a little before practice and then I left after practice where in the past I would have three or four players bring their lunch down and sit in my office and I would get to know them and they would get to know me. And then they would say to so-and-so, you know, Hey, we're going down to coaches. And then that player would come and it would just, that, that they would be, especially freshmen would be able to get to know each other and get to know the upperclassmen. And it just created this cohesiveness um, just because it was a part of everyday life. And it's, you know, I think that's, that's probably the biggest piece is that it's just natural. It's, you're not trying to force anything, you know, team bonding is awesome and important, but it can't be, you know, I can't have a manual in my hand and reading off what we're going to do next. It has to be natural and, and, you know, reading what the players need at the time and, and how they're responding to it. Is there anything from a culture perspective that you thought was a slam dunk and it just got rejected? Like you were, you were so excited about it <laughs> and the players were like, nah, this, this isn't working. <laughs> huh, that, that's a great question because there are, I've, there's definitely been times where my assistant coach and I have been excited about something and come back to the office afterwards and say, man, that, that didn't go like we thought. Um, but nothing, nothing major, you know, I, I think, you know, one thing we, like I said, with, with Hilbert and I've done it, my time at Fishers, we do a ton of individual workouts. So we get them in the gym, you know, just myself and them, or maybe sometimes my assistant coach too. And we talk about, you know, you want to play more, this is what you have to do. Or, you know, you want to get more shots off in a game. This is what you have to do. And we spend that half hour, 45 minutes, just focused on them. And, you know, there's always been great feedback with that. And so then we thought, you know, what if, what if we gave them a partner and have them go in the gym another day a week with their partner and, you know, get shots up and, and do kind of that extra, extra piece, um, you know, rather than us forcing them to come in, in the gym with us. And that was definitely something that they, they like the attention from the coaches. They like that one-on-one, they love the time with their teammates, but they'd rather go in because they, they have free time in between classes and not because coach said, hey, it's Thursday, make sure you're getting up your 100 shots today. Um, and so I definitely would think, I thought that would be something they'd get more into and they didn't. But I think it happens all the time with, with things and then we just pivot and, and find a, a new direction with it. Um, don't spend a ton of time dwelling on it, but we do our best not to re repeat that stuff for sure. <laughs> I love all the basketball analogies that we've been able to use in, in that, uh, that whole spiel there. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I want to know the, the difference for you. Cause you said a couple of things. You said you're coaching people, not a game, but the basketball piece is important. Right. And uh, so like breaking down, you know, how you help people as, as you had said in that email to me, become better people, off the court, uh, but also help them get better on the court. Like how much of is it, if, how, like what is the balancing act there between being able to help each individual player and then being able to maybe um, scale that out to a team setting? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, the, the one, one thing that we encounter a ton is freshmen who come in and who aren't great communicators. Um, you know, it's simple as, you know, on defense, being able to communicate screens, being able to communicate your positioning. And so really pushing them out of their comfort zone and being better communicators, but then also showing them how that translates to, you know, when we're walking down the hallway and, you know, making sure that your, your teammate has both their sneakers um, and being able to find ways to communicate other things, um, not just your defensive spot. You know, and I think a, a lot of it actually is probably leadership related, you know, sometimes having those players who aren't going to see the floor a ton and finding ways to encourage them in their role and have them see the value in their role. And then the goal with that would be, you know, when they're in a workplace someday that they can, you know, they see the value in someone else's role, they see the value in their own role. And so, you know, that, that's what we, we try to do is, you know, make sure that what we are pushing them can be applied to more than basketball. Now, you know, I don't know how boxing out necessarily applies to, you know, something else in life. You know, there, those are just maybe little details that we have to focus on finishing a possession, make sure you finish the project to the full extent, but it's, you know, making sure what we're reinforcing every day um, to them as individuals. And, and again, holding everyone accountable for, um, I think we can look at and apply bigger picture. So now that you've you know, had 
several years of coaching experience, a couple stops, playing experience as well. I mean, like what paint us a picture into what goes into the ideal recruit to help you continue to have that simple and selfless culture. You know, I, I, this time of year is a huge recruiting time, you know, whether it's on the road a ton or now there's so many live streams that we can buy and watch players play. And so the Twitter world is just full of tweets of, you know, coaches putting out what they're looking for in, in recruits. And it makes me laugh because I see, you know, the coaches that say, you know, I, I get to the warmups early to make sure that they're going hard in warmups. And that might be true, but in an AAU tournament, teams two minutes to warm up. So I don't really know, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, warmups are really important because sure they are, but you know, I, I think some of that is, is just words that, you know, we're, we're, we're supposed to stay, sure. um, you know, I want, I want a player who is, like I said before, willing to get in the gym from March to October without me asking them, you know, I'll give them a summer workout. I'll encourage them, but they need to love playing basketball and love competing so much that they want to spend that time in the gym. And, you know, so that, that's the basketball piece. And then the teammate piece, it's its a player who can have a bad game and still be happy for their teammates. And I think that's that's the beauty of these, these tournaments that we go to is players are playing three games in a day. I don't know how many players are having three great games every day. And so seeing when they have that poor game, just how do they respond to it? I, I'm okay if they show some frustration because it means they care, but sure. it's are they able to get out of their own head and are they able to be happy for their teammates and still build their teammates up when they're not having their best their best game? Uh, and I, I think that when I see that, you know, maybe sometimes I, I pass on a, a better recruit um, because I see someone who just has better body language and will be that better teammate in the long run. And they may never step on the floor for us, but if I know I can have someone like that and I, they, they know their role, um, that goes so far. But you know, obviously I'm recruiting the, mo the most talented players that I can for our level who are going to just buy into that team concept. And you know, the biggest piece of that is being able to be happy for your teammates when things aren't going your way. Sure. Sure. And I really appreciate you sharing that, especially giving us an example of, you know, an identification piece. Cause a lot of people can say, Oh, we want really great team players, but how do you find, like, that was what was going through my head <laughs> until you walked us through, you know, you're looking for the body language you're looking for. I mean, that's had to be the, you know, the hardest part of the COVID year, you know, not having the opportunity to get your eyes, you know, actually on these players on the court and, you know, understand how they handle adversity and, and all those type of things. And um, so I, I appreciate all, all of that insight and it's leading me into my final question for you. And we have talked so much about coaching, um, but I think some of the other themes that maybe get forgotten sometimes are the commitment that it takes, the time commitment, the travel commitment. I mean, you talked about just traveling on a day-to-day -day basis, not even talking about traveling for games and traveling for <laughs> tournaments, et cetera. Why did you get into coaching originally? Uh, and, and what do you think has kept you motivated, kept you engaged, and why you continue to do it and do it really well? Great question. Uh, I think I, I would say I got into coaching um, just because it was where I was pulled and it just all felt like it was meant to be. You know, I, I was in grad school at the time, loved what I was studying, but when I was in the gym, it's where I felt most like me. And I think back to that first interview, I think the reason why I got the job was because in the interview, I wasn't saying what I was supposed to say. I was saying exactly what I felt. And it, it, I wasn't trying to be anyone other than me. And I think that kind of made me realize that it was where I was supposed to go. And, you know, the, the other piece of being able to be successful at this is what we talked about before, the support system. Having a husband who, you know, it understands that some nights we're not having dinner until 930 or he's having dinner by himself or, you know, I'm gone for the weekend or, you know, whatever it is. And, and now that, you know, we have a baby in the picture, just his buy-in of, you know, wh whatever he has to do to make it work, he's going to. And, you know, I, I have to adjust a little bit and where I would love to watch four or five games on an opponent before we play them. Maybe I cut that back to two or three now. And I don't think I'm shortchanging my players. It's just forcing me to be more efficient. And it's just forcing me to, to change how I look at, um, you know, some of my own preparation for things. But it's having the, the support of Mick to 
to allow me to do this. And then, you know, e even within my athletic department, I work for the best athletic director in the country. My assistant coach should be a head coach and she will be a head coach anywhere she wants to, but she's willing to be my assistant and to, to do, help me go the extra mile for our players. And so really the people around, and, and I am as competitive as it gets. I, I can't imagine working in an environment where there's not a scoreboard. And I don't mean that, you know, just in the game scoreboard, I, I mean, you know, making sure my players graduate and being excited for them when they get jobs and, you know, having those things to, to look forward to because I'm as competitive as anybody. Um, and unfortunately, that's kind of unfortunate for my husband because everything that goes on in the house, it, it's a competition in some way. <laughs> well, well I, it's not a bad thing. Competition's good. Helps helps uh, elevate things as, as I like to think about uh, quite often. So, well, Melissa, my... Very final thing, somewhat related to what I just asked you, but there's a lot of coaches currently, a lot of people who are interested in coaching. What are just some maybe final pieces of advice that you could tell to somebody who's either interested in getting into the profession or is in the profession and trying to get to the stage where you are, where you're very confident in what you do and you're able to perform uh, to, a, to a place that allows your team to be as successful as they've been? Just have to be willing to go through some hard times. And like, I think what the, basically the overall theme of this has been is that you have to be willing to adjust. And so if you wanna, wanna get into coaching, wherever a door is open, what, whatever level that is, whatever pay that is, wherever the location is, get your foot in the door. And then once you get there, just be willing to grow. Have that blank notebook that you're filling in ideas all the time with, you know, it's, you're an assistant coach you know, putting in, you know, what you would have done differently, how you, what decisions you might've made um, and just, just push yourself more than, you know, may, maybe you're getting pushed to, from others because that'll, that'll help you get where you want to go. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'd say is it, this is the best job in the world. And I, I, I'm sure that other people and hopefully other people in other professions think their job is the best job in the world, but I really do have the best job in the world. And so, if you get the opportunity, make sure you savor every second of it, because thinking about going into my seventh season right now, it's, it's absolutely crazy to think that that's how quickly this time has gone and that I know it's not a forever thing. So just enjoy the moments and know that it's not always going to be easy, but it's worth every second. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Great way to end this episode. Melissa, I think you even have the name of your future book. You can call it Pivot and you talk about all the adaptability, all the adjusting and everything that you need to do. So there you go. I gave you the title. I don't need any credit, but you've got it. Oh, <laughs> well, we, we can co-write that one together. I, I think you did well with your first one. So, you know, see what we can do from there. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, Melissa, thank you again so much for taking the time today. We have talked extensively about leadership and culture. I know we will continue these conversations after this, but it was nice to get this recorded, be able to share with the listening audience. I know they're going to learn a lot from you and uh, give Melissa a follow, give her program a follow. You can definitely learn a lot from her, but thank you again so much for taking the time today. Appreciate you having me. Looking forward to uh, to listening to some, some future podcasts because again, these get me through a lot of my runs. So I appreciate that and a lot of the drives to Buffalo. So thank you.